Hey everybody and welcome to Get Your AI On, the podcast. I'm Ciprian Borodescu and this podcast is brought to you by Morphle, the AI platform for e-commerce. I'm the host of the show and every episode I invite founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and even AI researchers to share with us their experience in dealing with business problems that can be solved through intelligent use of data. This is special episode number 18. Let's get your AI on. When you're starting from like in the typical data world, you start from essentially one massive database of millions of data points across lots of different people. Mm -hmm. So what if you turn that the other way around, that you start with holistic and rich data points on an individual level? And yeah. how can you essentially model based on that? And you're absolutely right to kind of, you know, um, you know, kind of uh, tear at this problem because it's not trivial. And that means that, for example, if it's something that's as compute and data intensive as machine learning, um, you have to kind of break it down. So one of yeah. the things um, we like, you know, at the end of the day, I, I try to kind of think about it from a big picture and then also like a, a small picture from and I think from the small picture point of view, you can do a lot with very basic modeling, like with very, very basic, like 80, 20 rule type of data. You can actually create quite a lot of good indicators for merchants. So this is one of the things that that's really valuable, really important for us, that, that if essentially somebody uses this system, they have to get value right away, not, not in 90 days or 180 days. It has to be right away that when the user lands on the site, then you know a little bit more about the user and then you can provide more value for the user. And for the user, it has to be one click and then value. It, it can't yeah. be any more you know, difficult than that. So you can start off with very basic things. Like you take 10, 10 data points. Like if you're able to validate and cross-check 10 data points, like age bracket, income back bracket, demographic, um, you know, mm-hmm. where they live, um, you know, some of the interesting groups and events and so on and so forth that they, they engage with. I mean, you already know quite a lot. And if this yeah. is data that, that you can trust, um, for example, it's aggregate data over the last year, uh, like this person has been at, you know, 17 events that, that kind of fall in this category. This person mm-hmm. has, you know, spent X amount of dollars in this category, yada, yada. Um, not exposing any raw data, not exposing anything sensitive, but just kind of, you know, this type of behavioral data. That's already quite valuable. But now you're absolutely right that, that, for essentially training a predictable and statistically significant model, that's something where essentially it does require various different steps. But for yeah. us, a lot of the things that we start with is just very primitive access to holistic data. And then from there, I think that you can do a lot of different, more sophisticated things. Um, yeah. But this is also like just just kind of thinking also kind of back, um, like what we did in, in for example, uh, the fintech company I ran, uh, we worked with a lot of anti-money laundering and compliance systems. And that's something where, for example, if you have to you know, work with, for example, anti-fraud or money laundering or so on, then I mean, at that stage, you, you, you work in rules and thresholds, like you work with statistical significance, you work with pattern recognition and all these different things. So I think that that's, that's absolutely important. Uh, but at the same time, just thinking about where the merchants are today, and thinking about like how can we help them take one step, you know, in the right direction, and then one step beyond there, and one step beyond there. Then the first thing is just essentially that if we can give them access to better data, so that they can provide better value, that's yeah. already essentially a game changer. 
And then from there, they can essentially optimize and they can train and so on and so forth. But these are, I mean, this is kind of where the open collaboration comes in as well. That, for example, Kimo, who's our, our CTO in our company, he's ran three data companies. And he's somebody that, that uh, in his PhD, he studied neural networks in the late 90s. Um, so these are all things that, that we're kind of also grappling with internally that we're mm-hmm. thinking about, like, you know, if you start with the individual and you have lots of different individual, like you have millions of individuals, um, how do you do that? Kind of instead of essentially starting from one database with millions of data. Okay. And I think Google has also been very visionary in this sector. I mean, of course, they have a lot of insight about kind of trends and they have a lot of different kind of um, projects yeah. in the works. They also have mm-hmm. lots of open source for libraries and so on and so forth. But that's actually a really, really cool kind of just very specific point about federated learning. That, mm-hmm. um, that's something that we're also looking into. Um, and I think that there are a lot of these types of um, these types of initiatives that that as we get into kind of the new area of era of things, um, mm-hmm. then I mean they'll just become more and more viable because mm-hmm. you know for example uh, third party cookies being depreciated um, yep. that's that's not a small thing that's going to be quite a big shift. So I did my homework well sort of but I did browse the news vendor problem. But essentially, essentially what I want to understand, if the uncertain demand also refers to times such as the ones we're going through right now, or this vendor, news vendor model is appropriate for slight variations in demand, not outliers, let's say. So, so that's actually a, ver- a very good um, observation about all of these classical operations research models. You know, in, in, in the old days when there wasn't in, uh, really a lot of data available, um, most of these models that people worked with started with, oh, the demand is this, uh, and it's usually just a random variable, a distribution that is given to you. Um, yeah. now, now, obviously, in real life, no one gives you <laughs> that, that uh, demand distribution uh, for free. Uh, so, so actually, a, a, a big part of, of how you would use these models in practice is uh, figuring out what the inputs are to these models. Uh, and, and estimating demand is definitely one of the first things that people need to deal with or, or estimating whatever other um, inputs uh, you're using in your models from real data. So um, with regards to your question, right, I think, I think such a model will, will be useful in these days as well. Um, if you're using the right demand, uh, which you would have to sort of estimate on these times that you call outliers as opposed to just using the same demand you would uh, use in normal times. Uh, I, I actually think the bigger difference in these times compared to usual times is, is the trade-offs. I think in, in these times, as I was alluding to before, uh, what changes is that really you don't want to run out of stock. Um, like in 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 and this is actually common to retailers in general. The 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 cost of of not meeting demand is usually usually outweighs the cost of ordering too much a lot by a lot. Um, but but in these times, I imagine it's it's even more debalanced. Like you really don't want to lose demand on on some items or the essential items, and and on the other items, you probably just don't even carry them anymore. So, so this trade-off between how much you want to satisfy demand and, and the cost of, of ordering too much, usually in this model in particular, is really summarized by the service level you want to guarantee. Uh, so if yeah. you want to meet 95% of the demand, then you, know, you, you order a given amount. If you want to satisfy 99% of the demand, you order more. 
and, and, and this service level is in practice really set by managers based on intuition about, about the, the business. But in a more uh, rigorous formulation is really given by, by the cost of not meeting uh, demand and, and ordering demand. We already discussed about the stage of the company when hiring a product manager makes sense. But when product operations becomes a bottleneck? So I think the first thing is to define what product operations is. Uh, so product operations is, um, it's a side team. So you don't necessarily manage product managers or product owners, but you come in with two big mandates. Uh, the first one is making sure that the product team and the product management team is well equipped to do their job. Uh, so do, do they have the right tools? Uh, do they have the right process in place? Uh, do they have uh, everything they need to be successful to have to 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 do their work frictionless in a frictionless way? So that's the first thing. So it's very tooling oriented and process oriented. The second portion is more of a coaching and mentoring aspect, where you share best practices. So at Element AI, I created the product management guild so that we could meet every week and share learnings. And so it's kind of a support role to a head of product or a VP of product who manages these people and you come in to uh, help the VP of product and the, the product management team uh, on a horizontal fashion. Typically, product operations will only happen once you start to have a very complex product organization. So you have a product portfolio, let's say maybe more than three or five products. And so a VP of product is really looking at the roadmap and making sure everything's orchestrated and that person might not have as much time to worry about processes and, and tooling and also coaching and mentoring. So obviously there's coaching and mentoring happening as well on the, on the executive side, but it also helps to kind of create a horizontal layer of, of, of help, uh, of help there. If you take this next question out of context, it might sound really funny. What is SOAP? Why? Should we know about it and where can we get more of it? And yes, soap is not the thing you use to wash your hands with. It's actually a framework that Paul created. Tell us more about it, Paul. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek uh, joke. Uh, our company is called Bain Public, which in French translates for public bath. And we always feel that you know companies need to um, use hygiene on their roadmaps. So... You know, we often we often joke that it's time to clean your product roadmap. Um, so that, clever, you know, we yeah. were yeah. So we we're playing with the idea of cleaning, and uh, we said, well, if you want if you're if if you want to give your product the care it deserves, then you need to use soap. Um, <clears throat> and so we created this methodology, which is a twelve step methodology. It's you know, it's nothing clever. It's basically a an aggregation of a number of uh, of things um, that we do as product managers all into one. Um, for that basically allows companies to go from we have no product roadmap to we have a product roadmap, uh, and this framework basically we called it SOAP um, because it's it's you know it's all about roadmap prioritization, product strategy. Um, uh, so the S stands for strategy, right? Um, and so there is <laughs> we used to have uh, ability to be able to tell you what SOAP stands for. Um, um, I completely forgot though at this point because I think that we just started using it as 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 what it is really. It's just uh, 
um, it's 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 a way to start fresh, uh, a way to basically use soap to you know remove the dirt and continue building the right product. What do you think, or maybe you've experienced it yourself, is the most surprising thing for a marketer when coming in contact with an AI project or product for the very first time? It's not that complicated. I think that's the most surprising find because like if you sit down and talk to someone who really understands AI really, really well, they will be able to explain it to you in a way that makes sense uh, for a non-technical person. They will tell you in simple analogies what AI does and how it works and how that is very similar to like in certain extent how you as a human being make decisions or how your brain works uh, and how you process information and you look at uh, new information with the lens of your previous experience and try to categorize in most cases or build new things in other cases, depending on, on what kind of AI you're, you're talking about. But it's not too dissimilar from other parts of life that we're very familiar with, uh, which we do every single day. Like we, when we show up to work or we, we talk to people, we choose to go to a party or not. And this is actually an example that one of our, uh, our senior AI people uh, talks about every time. It's like the decisions that come into play when you're deciding whether to go to a friend's party or not are actually a combination of sub-decisions in your previous experiences with the group of people that will be there. If you're feeling well that day, uh, if that last interaction with your friend was a good one, if you're looking to do something there specifically, or if the train ride or, or car ride is not too far away, or if you have other plans that are likely to yield better rewards that are competing with that. So that was a very interesting example. And I think that's the kind yeah. of uh, examples that help non-AI people understand what AI does. It's not the black box. It's not magic. And I know that you've been involved with a lot of product teams over the years. And uh, what, what are some of the most important roles you believe such teams should consist of? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Especially if it's an AI company at core. And maybe, you know, you've been a founder and an entrepreneur. Maybe talk a bit about these teams as relative to the, to the stage of the company, from startup to scale-up company to maybe enterprise the size of Nike? Um, so, okay. <laughs> um, I, I think, let, let's first talk about the different thing. I think it's useful to talk about the maturity of the technology and product organizations um, in, in, in those companies. And um, let, let's say you have, you have at, one, at one extreme, um, not extreme, at one end, you'll have um, traditional companies. Um, and at the other end, you'll have the Amazons of the world. Um, and in between, you'll have things like Walmart or Target or something like that. Now, depending on where you are on the scale, you're going to approach problems related to, um, let's call it data uh, and, and automation um, and uh, AI research differently. Um, because most probably it won't be core to your, to your activity, uh, or maybe it will. Um, so, so the chances of... Uh, um, of being very different from between between the three buckets uh, are pretty high now. Now, assuming that the the AI uh, um, department is not really set um, yet set up yet, 
it's it's a very different approach in my experience than traditional product management on how 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 to build those products because like think about it it's instead of going after features and wireframes and um and customer discussions um you're building things with the with one of the biggest scopes in collecting data and getting more input for your uh, for your system um and at the same time internally inside the organization um you it's it's very hard um well, it's very hard like everything around ai is expensive um from from hiring to educating everyone to um getting expertise on board from to iterating and and teaching the organization that um there's no big launch moment. It's an optimization problem and you have to work for it and you have to change your mindset as an organization. So um, that is built gradually, in my experience. And the best thing, the, the best way to, to, to build it is you kind of want to start small, but with something that has a pretty large business impact um, and something that's feasible also. And for even for that thought, you have to bring a lot of people together inside the organization. Um, you need data science, you need data engineering, because most of the work is in data engineering before people can mingle with that data. Um, you, you you need your researchers, you need, uh, in some cases, you need design involved, you, ha- you need the product teams involved, you need uh, the domain experts that will uh, will tell you and educate you on the, on the business uh, feasibility. You'll need the technical experts that will educate you on technical feasibility and so on and so forth. Um, so from, and then you'll have to pitch it to executives or senior leaders. Um, and you kind of have to link it to the AI strategy if the company has one, um, or, or you have to just, just build the strategy at the same time. So your project is successful. I, I don't, I think it varies a lot. Um, but I would say like to summarize it, I think in most organizations they require a lot of executive leadership education. Um, it's almost impossible to start uh, to start with a big bang. Um, so so you have to figure out a way to start small, um, but pick something that has pretty um, that that can either be scaled or has a pretty big business value. Um, otherwise, no one will listen to to you or your project or your strategy. Um, and the last one, the last one is the the mental model in product. Uh, management kind of flips a bit um, and that needs uh, again iteration and learning for those that want to understand the end game for ai technology i strongly encourage them to read the ai republic it's on amazon and uh, honestly there are many things that resonate with me from the uh, ai versus ia analogy big data versus write data or the MAP, minimum algorithmic uh, performance. I think these are important notions and concepts and, uh, you know, to be understood for any leader out there that wants to incorporate AI into their organization. What are three actionable takeaways you'd want entrepreneurs or executives or managers to remember after reading your book and immediately be able to apply to their startups or organizations? Okay. Okay. Uh, I think the first thing that like uh, one needs to understand is this: the the the, uh, the most important part of the mo- of of AI is not the model itself. You know, like uh, 
I like uh, in 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 like uh, a couple of articles that I I I wrote. Uh, we wrote. Um, we always uh, you know use you know like uh, if you think about AI is essentially an AI model. A good AI model is like a performance car engine. You can have a very like you can have a Lamborghini Ferrari engine, but you need the rest of the Ferrari. You need the rest of the Lamborghini in order to go from point A to point B. So the key is actually not to focus on the AI model itself. As a matter of fact, you know, lots of companies actually buy AI models from the other vendors. You know, like uh, now because there's so many AI like uh, you know developers. Again, you know what? You, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to actually go and try to beat like a deep mind when it comes to the game of gold, that's a completely different story than you know you're trying to use AI to deal with customers' questions online, right? So you know it's a very very different thing. So um, think about you know, like uh, you know what like uh, not about the AI model itself, but the rest. You know that is the the the, the key to success is to get the rest correct. You can do it yourself. I'm not asking you like uh, you not to do it. Or you can actually like uh, you know get like uh, vendors to work closely with vendors to make sure that the so-called production environment is actually like uh, you know up to scratch. So think think about that because like uh, no matter how much like uh, how many POCs and pilots you do, you know if you have not got anyone to help you to implement, you won't be able to handle it. The second uh, actionable takeaways, right? I, I believe is. You know, do not even uh, like uh, think that you need to collect enough data in order to actually run AI projects. It's not, um, you know, because like uh, what, again, what really matters is what exactly you are trying to achieve, you know. The use case, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, so in the case, like, uh, let's say uh, if you are, all you're doing is actually getting a model to make sense and read and understand and extract the data from a driving license, that's easy. Okay, because driving license, the data is always in exactly the same place. Whereas, you know, if you are asking, uh, you know, a machine to actually make sense out of bank statements, statements coming from different banks, they all have different formats. That's a slightly different story. Now, uh, what like uh, what we have like uh, what we're now doing these days is, you know, in the case of the like uh, when you do not have enough data, you know, you can already start to synthesize it. You know, we create for you. Right. Um, Correct. You know, it, it it is not terribly difficult because all we all you need to do is to actually make sure that like a like a you know all you need to do is to have certain set of data to start with, and then what we do is we'll make some changes to the data that you have got, current data you have got, yep. and then we push it to actually train to like uh, the model to be uh, like uh, to be more accurate yep. or to be more able to read you know like uh, to read yep. the document. And of course, it's not perfect, but at least it's a starting point, right? Oh, it's not perfect. Ah, you know what? You, 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 and, and you know, you, you came up with a very, very important point. Very, very important point. Do not even think for a moment that it will be perfect. You know, like uh, if you get a hundred percent, if someone is telling you that you can get a hundred percent out of it, the person is lying to you because, like, uh, you know, for whatever you like, they can. It's not going to be a hundred percent. And you have to actually understand, you know, like, uh, you know, the fact that you would never be able to kind of like uh, get to 100%. So my third takeaway is this, you know, think about, you know, what like uh, what percentage is actually acceptable. A lot of things you don't need 100%, right? You know, if you are just just checking documents, you don't need 100%. 
if you are like uh, using AI to diagnose cancer, probably you would want to look at 100%. Or you're using AI to decide whether someone should go to jail or not. Probably, you know, you're looking at 100% accuracy. But in many cases, you don't really need 100% accuracy. So in your book, Creating Value with Artificial Intelligence, you're talking about a very good framework of identifying use cases and problems that can be solved through intelligent use of data. In fact, it's a set of features that make the collaboration between humans and machines work. Can you dive a bit deeper into it and uh, give a few examples? Um, Absolutely. So I think the, the framework... Uh, what I'm talking about is that start, again, to start with the why, start with the problem, right? So why why do you want to build a solution? And th- this is a lot of companies, a lot of startups say, we want to use AI. I mean, that, that's the wrong <laughs> place to start. So f- first you have to start with, okay, is there a problem that we, is worth solving using machine learning or, or, or technology? Or in general technology, but also AI and machine learning, let's say, because... yeah. And, and how to identify the right problem? And I say that, first of all, identify problems that have huge human error or the existing error in those uh, ways you are solving is quite high um, for various reasons could be. And then see if there are patterns. Once you have these things that there are, you can see there are repeat patterns that, are, that how the currently the problem is solved, there are potential repeat patterns and there are high errors. Then go and look out for the data to solve those problems. Because a lot of times, again, companies make this mistake that they first start with the data. They say, okay, we have this data. What can we do with this data? And I always say that's a wrong approach because then you are limiting yourself to the data that you already only have rather than trying to uh, look at, okay, there is, uh, rather than starting from a problem which might require other data that you may not have, but you only start with, if you look at only the data you have, then you will ignore the data out there, which may be publicly available and you can get that data anyways. So I think that the, the framework for me is very simple. Start the problem, identify uh, if there are patterns, and then look for the data that you have. And then, of course, once you select the right problem, uh, know what data to collect or what data you have, then go and overcome the challenge with the data. So I have this notion, and I've had it for a while, that every single company should have a game designer. Um, not in... I mean... Also a designer in terms of art, but a game designer in terms of mechanics, designing mechanics for games. I've come to 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 like a realization that game designers are some of the most um, cognitively flexible and productive and creative people I've met. And because making mechanics for games in is in in some ways a a very general um, basic way of building an organism and how that organism functions and 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 when you look at it from a, a from this perspective, every company is an organism, whether it's on the human level or on a technology level or on the product level, there's always parts that interact in a in a way like we said before. Uh, tree and the forest and game designers I find have always very insightful um, comments on various different parts of 
whatever it is you're doing, whether it's an autonomous vehicle company or a marketing company or a, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, a machine learning company that does recommender engines, like we said before, I find that, so that's my first part of the answer. Every company that deals with AI or, you know, any sort of digital technology or I'm going to out on the limb and say every company should have a game designer. If you're, even if you have a, a, a chain of stores. Yeah. So, so one was the game designer. Second was um, somebody who um, understands the technology at a foundational level. So um, let's call it an, an uh, uh, expert engineer. Um, and then what I, I don't know if this translates to other, like I, I have somewhat good insight into games because that's where I kind of grew up in the industry. Um, I don't know if the, the, the role of a producer is a thing, um, across, you know, various specters of, of industries, but basically, you know, in the games industry, um, there's this joke that the job description of a producer is buy lunch. Um, and it's a, it's a nice ridicule of a certain social skill set that I think is absolutely crucial in an organization, which is somebody that sees and realizes and also in a way manages all the subtle little team dynamics between people, right? Because one of the issues, for example, that we have um, sometimes, not all the time, was that if you're dealing with very specific engineering stuff, more often than not, you're going to have people who don't know how to deal with social anxiety, who don't know how to deal with social uh, pressures, problems, etc. And if you're somebody that for the vast majority of your life were in your room coding on problems and now all of a sudden you're part of an organization and you don't know how to solve like simple little problems like if somebody took your coffee uh, mug accidentally and you're and I as a person I'm going to keep having to put out fires because of you you're useless to me Right, because no matter how genius you are as an engineer, there's going to be more effort to make everything going than what your results will produce. So that's why I think the the, the third role as you know whatever it is you call the producer in other industries, um, and the manager is not a proper word for this because usually what manager means is somebody who misplaces trust and uses, you know, all sorts of leverage to, to make people do whatever it is at hand. Um, so the, the point being is how you identify the nuances in dynamics in the team so that, you know, conflicts and fires don't even come up, right? So in a way, it's like a, it's like a teacher in an elementary school class where, you know, 
if you don't react to certain things fast enough in a proper manner, all of a sudden you will have a fire in your your classroom that you're not going to be able to put out without resorting to authoritarian measures, which are always, in my opinion, imp- make you look impotent and l- lose a certain amount of prestige, right? As many times as you have to raise the voice and like uh, uh, go all monkey-like, yeah. you're, you're just losing you know, prestige and a certain level of respect. So I think that's the third crucial part. Um, besides, of course, all, all, all the usual uh, uh, suspects, you know, of um, uh, having somebody who can communicate the ideas, somebody who can operate the ideas, sort of scrum master, etc. And I know that you're collaborating with both academia and health experts. And I wanted to, to ask you, what are some of the do's and don'ts of conducting this kind of research based on your experience? Is there a difference between doing research in academia versus a deep tech startup well, where speed is of the essence? Do you feel there's a difference in approaches or maybe speed? Yes, I do believe there's a difference in both. So, so speed definitely is a huge difference. Another another difference is the direction and um, the process based on on milestone and having a, a specific goal. Sometimes fundamental research, um, you you do research, but you're not sure where it would uh, it will lead you. But when you're doing it um, for a business and to to address a specific need. Well, you you have a specific objective, so you cannot just go go with the flow. You have uh, those objectives that you need to respect in a specific um, time frame. So this is yeah, the main um, this is the main difference. However, uh, we believe that um, having partnership with academia is a great thing because there's all this knowledge. Uh, there are people who are working for for many years uh, or even decades on some topics. So it would be a shame not to leverage this, uh, this existing knowledge. Uh, so, so for us, the, um, the very important point was that when we um, meet with potential partners to really uh, filter for that um, uh, attitude uh, aspect uh, towards how uh, they feel about um, reaching milestones and respecting a, a specific timeline and how they, they feel about that. Is it something that seems to excite them or is it something that you see that um, they're really not comfortable with? So when we yeah. see that it's something that excites them and that they they feel that they are part of uh, something concrete, that they are part of uh, uh, a journey um, that will lead to market adoption in a pretty uh, short period of time. Some of them are really excited about that and it can lead to, yeah. to great partnerships. All right, this was Get Your AI On podcast. Thank you all for listening and be sure to subscribe. We're going to post a new episode every other week, so stay tuned for the next conversation. See you next time.